Es gibt so viel, das uns vereint, denn ja, auch du bist hier gemeint. Jetzt alles geben. Den Aufbruch leben. Wir sind bereit. So Chen, I don't know about you, but one thing I love about elections is how bizarre the TV ads can sometimes be. And I thought that that contribution from the German Green Party would be the perfect way to lead us into this week's episode. <laughs> and for our English-speaking listeners who don't understand German, what does that mean? Well, they've called the song Ein Schöner Land, which is like a play on quite a famous traditional German folk song, which is called Kein Schöner Land in dieser Zeit, which basically means not a beautiful land at this time, which I think is like quite an intelligent choice for a Green Party, actually, because they're talking about the state of the world and the state of Germany. But I think the reason, well, I'm always partial to an election song. Um, but I think the reason in particular I love this one is because after loads of members of the public sing, it then goes to, with the tune still playing, Annalena Baerbock and uh, Robert Harbeck just refusing to sing. Um, so I did find that quite funny. Well, as someone from a non-drama, non-musical talent, I totally sympathize with them. <laughs> anyway, it, there's a lot more to discuss and... We better get going. It is Saturday, the 11th of September, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Sam. How's everything going? Are you ready for the roller coaster that is about to start? I'm very ready. I mean, I can't believe on Monday we have Norway's election, the first one to actually occur. And I, I can't wait to get my teeth stuck back into election coverage. It should be an exciting few weeks for sure. Indeed. And I can imagine you and I hopping on to many in, uh, state broadcasters that we probably only watch once every four or five years and then probably not think about again until the next election comes around, isn't it? It is. We've been hunting down our TV stations where we could get the right coverage. And I think we're all ready to go to to enjoy the coverage ourselves, but also be able to share it with you as well. So um, I thought, Jen, before we start today's podcast, we should talk about the fact that today is quite an extremely poignant day because it marks 20 years on since the terrible events that took place up the eastern seaboard and especially in New York City when the Twin Towers were struck on 9-11. And 20 years on, some of the subsequent foreign policy decisions that we're still dealing with today to just reflect on what occurred 20 years ago and the years subsequently. And do you think, Chern, you could identify any lessons you have learnt or you think that governments have learnt in the process as well? Well, first of all, I can't quite believe it's been 20 years. It seems to be just yesterday. I was five when that happened. And even as a five-year-old, it's still, the you know, 9-11 is a, it's a news event that has stuck. One of the first news events I was aware upon, really. And most people older than me can remember what they were doing when they heard about what happened um, in New York City and throughout the United States. I also don't think that if you, th if you thought back to that day that the foreign policy decisions that would subsequently come about, you know, the Americans invading Iraq, you know, being in Afghanistan, you know, will, will take place 
you know, with, from that one event. I don't think many people would have thought that would happen. But 20 years on, I still see it. And it's very poignant that this year is the year in which Afghanistan fell back to the Taliban again. I just see it as a case of, sadly, history repeating itself. If you look at the fall of the Taliban, they face the same, you know, the idea of nation building is something very different. It is very easy for superpowers to come in and invade a country, but then to build a better nation than the nation that it founded in is totally a different ordeal. And in a world where we're looking more inward, sometimes, you know, events like 9-11 remind us that you, big countries have to look outwards as well. And for the, the very act of that one you know, horrific day in New York City spawning all kinds of other terrorist attacks around the world and ushering potentially very dangerous era in that what we see now. It's just something which I don't, I, I don't think many people saw coming on that fateful day. What about you, Sam? I was only three when 9-11 occurred, so I don't actually remember it occurring. But nonetheless, it's been one of those events that like as scarred into everyone's tissue when we first become aware of it or first understand the scale of what happened that day as well um and i mean i come from a musical theater background so one of one thing that i like to bring to discussions when we reflect on it is the story of the musical come from away which is the true story of when planes had to be grounded because the airspace was closed and the community of gander in newfoundland taking um, 7,000 passengers under their wing for five days. And it's stories like that that I think it's important to reflect on as well, where there were just some outstanding stories of community spirit, people coming together and comforting each other in what was a really scary time. And I think reflecting on those stories of community spirit, especially after the 18 months we've just gone through, where the world has had to come together once again, um, I think it's it's nice also to reflect on those positives of 9-11 as well. And I, and I think as well, as you remember all those victims, over 2,700 people that died, there are not only those families that lost their loved ones and in, in the tower itself, but in the foreign policy decisions that struck on, but those first responders as well, those that ran towards the fire on that fateful day who are now suffering the ill effects of it. And I think all of them will be, should be in our memories, not only today, as we remember 20 years on, but help should continue to be provided to them, shouldn't it, Sam? Absolutely. And I think we both agreed that it was important to acknowledge it on, on the day we were recording. But nonetheless, there are politics coming up that I think we should cover as well. Um, so this week, we'll be taking a look at what is possibly the most consequential elections of all the ones that are taking place in the next month in terms of politics beyond that country's borders, um, which is the race to replace 16-year German Chancellor Angela Merkel, which will reach its dramatic climax on Sunday the 26th of September. Germans will be going to the polls to elect the 20th Bundestag in a set of elections that I don't think we could have expected to turn out quite in the way they have, which we'll be unpacking today. And in the meantime, we'll be taking a deeper look into the runners and riders to become the next chancellor and the parties that have been supporting them 
along the way. So, Chern, this is a very unusual German election in many ways because it's probably the first ever genuine three-way race for Chancellor. It's the first Bundestag election since 1949 when the Federal Republic of Deutschland was founded not to involve an incumbent Chancellor. And it's not only that, is it's taking place in the middle of a global pandemic. So I thought a big question we should start with is, what do you think, given all that uniqueness, will define this election? What are voters thinking about? To be honest, the very first thing I think most Germans, but particularly people my age, is that we're going to soon enter Germany not led by Angela Merkel. And that's a thought in which I don't think many people like myself can has quite understood really having known Angela Merkel since we started getting politically aware as the only German chancellor we have ever known um so I think that's the first thing on a slightly more personal note this election I think we're as we mentioned a few times we're approaching an era in the COVID-19 pandemic where it's not all about the health response and how governments have dealt with it it's now going to be a case of what is the economic plan regarding reopening and rebuilding our economy post-COVID And I think a lot of Germans are thinking about that as well, rather than judging the governments not be at federal and state level, because some of the candidates like Armin Lachette is a minister president of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is one of the 16 German states. So he has a record to run over the next four years to consider. But if you look at a poll that was published and was on the Deutsche Welle news agency, we found that the percentage of respondents for what Germans fear the most included tax hikes due to COVID, rising costs of living, and tax hikes due to EU debt. So the first three ones are actually all related to possibly some of the economic responses that either directly or indirectly caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. So tax hikes due to COVID obviously is because you need to pay off all the additional federal government spending and something Germans have always prided upon and something that even the SPD, which is the centre-left party, has tried to maintain in some semblance when empowered the Christian Democrats is that balanced budget. And the rising cost of living could be associated with some of the supply chain issues that have been associated throughout um, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic period. So, And even EU debt itself was the extra money given to Italy and Spain. That didn't pay off. So that also has a COVID angle. So I think in this election, the economic management of COVID will probably be the ultimating deciding factor. And what would define this election is how Germans, having been used to a style of leadership of Angela Merkel for 16 years, and given her, frankly, astonishing popularity after 16 years in charge, is who is best able to carry out that kind of legacy and governing style. Do you agree, Sam? I definitely agree with the last thing you just said, which is, I think leadership is extremely important in this election more so than ever before really because as i as i said i think one of the key things about this election is the absence of an incumbent because usually germans are assessing the incumbent chancellor versus the pretender to the throne whereas this time they're assessing three people in the same circumstances because they don't know them as chancellor and they're scoping them out as a chancellor to lead them in a time of crisis, and which leads me nicely onto the other thing that I think is really important, is COVID has obviously defined politics internationally for the last two years, but Germany has also been experiencing 
the brunt of the climate crisis more so than any elections we're going to be talking about this month because of the intense flooding they've been experiencing quite recently. So I know that climate is a really big feature of the debates within this election and also within the candidates' platforms because of that experience. Um, and as we'll come to talk about, I think one of the reasons Armin Lachette has floundered recently as one example is because of his, the flooding that took place within the state he is the minister president of. And I think that's another thing that's helped the Greens rise over the last four years as well. So my answers will be leadership and climate, I think. Um, but as you said, it's an election dominated by lots of things and the voters have a lot on their minds considering they're not assessing a chancellor that they know. And I think particularly as well, if you look at Germans' place in Europe as well, you, a lot of Germans do consider the European Union in an indirect way in the way they vote. It might not be the top issue, but issues relating to the European Union, as I mentioned, you know, the EU debt, because of the fact that you've given so much money to, uh, extra money to Spain and uh, Italy with reason to help deal with their own COVID pandemic. And, you know, the 2017 election, in a way, it was Europe's decision to open its borders uh, through the migrant crisis driven by Germany that, you know, seeped into that mm -hmm. election in 2013. It was the Greek bailout crisis, if you, if you recall. So all throughout the last few elections, Germans have also been able to not only cast record on the government's domestic policy, but also how the EU is traveling. And I think it's one of the few elections within Europe that you can get a good indication at a national level apart from European Parliament elections, which some would argue, given its low turnout, might not be representative of that nation's population. But I do think the German elections is one in which you can get a good flavour about how the EU is performing itself. Don't you, do you agree? Definitely. That's a really good thing to, to point out. I thought one thing we could start with before we dive straight into the individual candidates running for Chancellor is the fact that there are also some regional elections taking place on the same day, which I thought is worth mentioning in the city state of Berlin, the capital city, and also in the northern state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. Because the federal election is completely dominating this cycle, as we would expect, we won't be going into too much depth, but I nonetheless think that there are a few interesting things to talk about with them. So Berlin first. It's currently governed by an SPD-led left-wing coalition, which they call a red-green-red coalition between the SPD, the Green Party, and the left. And it's led by Michael Muller, who will not be running for re-election. So again, an absence of an incumbent. And although they were placing in fourth place in most opinion polls for most of the term, to be honest, in early 2020, the SPD once again seemed to accelerate in the polls and look set to win it again but we'll probably need to be eyeing up another coalition of some description but as with much of german politics in recent years the acceleration of the green support have completely thrown the party system in berlin on its head and it seems to be that the biggest impact of the green party in berlin specifically has been where the votes go on the left of the political spectrum and the SPD and the left will be vying to maintain relevance within a world where the Green Party is accelerating as well. And then over in the northern state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, the current government is a grand coalition led by the SPD and that has been the case since 2006. But 
as in Berlin, and nationally, a significant recent SPD revival throughout the summer looks set to reward the SPD in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern with around 40% of the vote, which is nearly 10% increase on 2016, which is quite astonishing given the state of where the SPD have been in recent years in Germany, have, as we've alluded to many times before. So quickly to round off the state elections churn, do you think that these state elections taking place on the same day as the federal election are just following the federal election playbook or are they still quite unique and regionalized as we talked about with other German state elections this year? The simple answer is yes, they follow the same federal election playbook. And I don't think you can kind of blame them because in the end, you know, national coverage will definitely focus on the federal election race rather than the state election race. And for people who might not be as engaged in politics, so all you'll be reading during this period will be the federal election race. And of the two states you described, if you look at the recent poll movements, particularly the SPD surge, that is so also linked to the fact that the SPD candidate for chancellor, uh, Ole Schultz, has also seen an increase in popularity and that the wider SPD itself. So I don't think you can divorce the few, particularly if uh, the state elections fall within the federal election campaign. Now, I don't think, I can see why you would do this uh, state election might decide to hold its election during a federal election campaign, be it potentially, you know, to save money. You can have two elections rather than have one and potentially to ensure, given that most people vote in a federal election, that to keep a certain level of interest in the state election to see relatively high turnout. Because if you have two uh, state elections soon after federal election, voters might be fatigued particularly one in which you probably didn't start campaigning without knowing the fixed election date some time ago. But I still don't think that it's a good idea to hold a state election, the federal election. In a federal system like Germany, state governments have very distinct different areas of responsibility to federal governments. And one thing we know during COVID is that state governments play a very important role in places like, you know, the states have exclusive jurisdiction in places like the police education, public housing, prison, these are all fact, all factors that have to be considered now, you know, particularly education. How do you get kids to go safely to school, for example? And that was all being drowned out now by the what, who's going to succeed Angela Merkel. And the question is, is that how much of this for the, SP, in the SPD in Berlin and Mecklenburg-Vorpommern is how much of this is a mandate for my own state government rather than a mandate for the SPD as a whole because of how Olaf Schultz is performing. And if you go back in history, at the 2013 elections, the last time there was a clash, the Bavarian, you know, that's the election where the Christian Democrats did extraordinary well. We saw that in, um, in, the, in Bavaria, for example, the CSU was able to regain the absolute majority it lost in 2008. And how much of that was in confidence of the Bavarian state government rather than the fact that you know, it, this took place in when Angela Merkel was arguably at a height of her political power, really. It's really hard to divorce the two. And I think it's going to be really hard to divorce the two in this case as well. Do you agree, Sam? Yeah, I think I think I do. Um, because it's really interesting how you almost see an SPD surge in both of these states that basically tracks the SPD surge nationally that we're about to talk about. Um and I think the last time a state election took place on federal election day 
which was in 2013 in the state of Hesse, the voting percentages for the parties in the state were basically exactly the same as the voting percentages for Hess for the federal election as well. So I think what you're saying is correct, that I think they basically just follow the playbook um, nationally, which is unusual for German state elections because they usually operate on quite different lines where we see some interesting governments being formed, like the one we talked about earlier this year in Baden-Württemberg between the Greens and CDU, led by Winfried Kretschmann, that you probably wouldn't get on the national level. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see these states that take place on the same day not deviating from the national picture. And one final point on that, you know, one of the other states we, we thought we talked about in our podcast was the Saxony-Anhalt election. And we saw the CDU got a 7% increase in their vote in that election. And the SPD got its worst ever performance in that state election. If that election was to take place now, you can guarantee that that change in share of the vote would probably not happen. So it is the fact that you are judging a state government performance actually not on itself, but on the federal counterparts. I think that that is the biggest problem with this system at the moment. So moving on from the state elections that are taking place to talk about the top of the ticket, the big race to succeed Angela Merkel, I thought there's no better place to start than with Angela Merkel's party, the CDU-CSU Union, which will be looking to extend their 16 years in control of the federal chancellery with their candidate of Armin Laschet. So when the Minister-President of North Rhine-Westphalia, Laschet, was elected as CDU leader back in January and then subsequently confirmed as the Union Chancellor candidate in April, he was almost seen as the shoo-in to be the successor to Angela Merkel, continuing, as I said, their 16-year dominance of the centre-right coalition atop of German politics. But dismally low approval ratings and declining poll ratings for the party seem to imply that he's going to face quite a tough climb in these final few weeks if he is indeed going to be working in the federal chancery anytime soon. So what went wrong for Armin Laschet in recent weeks? Or do you think that this has been a long time coming and his personal popularity has always been a problem? First of all, a couple of things. I think before we consider his recent term question problems and we're going to bring up the floods in a minute because uh and something we hint about first i would like to think about the context of the 2017 north wine westphalia election the election which Armin lachette became the minister president of the state you know north wine westphalia is 25 percent of the german population this is a key state in german politics and it's a state in which the cdu traditionally doesn't govern very often at the state level if you look since 1956 up to 2017 they only govern it between 1958 and 1966 and 2005-2010 as uh, the minister president. The rest of the time has been SPD minister president. And so therefore, when Lachette won that, that election and became the minister president, I think that's what wrapped him up in this aura that, wow, this is the big SC, the CDU's next big thing, really. Because it, on paper, it's a very impressive accomplishment. And this was a state, if you remember the 2012 North Wine-Westphalia election, uh, then at CDU candidate Norbert Rotigan was actually fired as environment minister because of his poor performance in the state. So I think that this state is 
the fact that Amin Nashad won and won with the fact that he only could win with the FDP until that was the signal that to the CDU headquarters that yes, this is the man. But I think the context of it was the fact that Angela Merkel was still very popular as leader in lead up to the 2017 elections, which at that stage didn't expose some of the problems that she could potentially have over migration. And that was actually his good election performance was actually more due to her rather than him. And I think that is, in, is actually what has given him this aura, which frankly, I don't think he should really get in the first place. So that's the first thing. The second thing, he is noted for poor handling of the COVID-19 management. And one of the key things which voters have been deciding the government in recent, recent elections talked about. And thirdly, one of the things is when you Google Armin Lachette, so one of the first top searches is Armin Lachette laughing. And the context for this is the fact that um, he was seen laughing in the background when German President uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier was promising aid following the devastating flooding we alluded to in North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the state in which you know, he's minister president of. And his government is already by that stage screaming, criticized by the fact that the recovery had been slow and frustrating. And so if the people that have been frustrated by handling and you see him laughing in the background, that's such a poor image to have. And then worse of all, he compounded that mistake by the fact that he was seen in, um, donning rubber boots to visit flood-hit areas. Now, that's something we could see as very common. But in 2002, it was widely credited with reviving Gerhard Schroeder and boosting his popularity during that campaign. So many people saw it very much during a political lens and rather, rather insincerely, which didn't help his approval ratings whatsoever. So it's just been gaff after gaff piled onto each other, onto a man who possibly shouldn't be gaining the credit for the North Rhine-Westphalia election win than he should have, in my opinion. I think what's really interesting about the Laschet case is that he is sitting as the Chancellor candidate for a party that has, in the 72 years since 1949, only spent 20 years of that outside of government. So in my mind, the party infrastructure should be able to withstand an unpopular Chancellor candidate. But in this case, the CDU has been persistently recording some of its worst ever poll results in the history of the Federal Republic of Germany. Do you think Lachette's personal unpopularity is motivating the CDU struggles? Or do you think that the party is struggling beyond him as a candidate? I think a lot of it has to be due with his personal unpopularity. I can't divorce that. But I think the CDU is a bit lost, to be honest. Trying In the Western world, you know, it's hard for political prodigies to take over, particularly one to follow in the footsteps of Angela Merkel. And I just don't think that he's, the party's been able to answer what comes next as convincing, really. Now, some of it, we can't also have to look at Angela Merkel herself because one reason in which she was able to stay in power for so long was the fact she sidelined rivals in order to you know, be the queen of the CDU throne. And in doing so, you could argue that several good candidates who could have been the next chancellor to adequately take over from her simply never got the chance to do so. You know, at one point, Ursula von der Leyen was seen as the next successor to Merkel until she took over the defense ministry and, you know, no one would and left her there for too long. Carl Theodore, uh, Theodore is the other one, but the CDU, CSU candidate 
And, you know, even Frederick Mertz at one point was seen as heir to Merkel, all sidelined by her as she attempted to hold on to that crown. And I think part of the CDU struggles right now do relate to the fact that of the current bunch, maybe Lachette is the best. But then again, there's always Marcus Schroeder to always destroy that. And that you can't really blame on Angela Merkel herself for that decision. So I think part of it is mm-hmm. the fact that Lachette has failed to capitalize. But I do think as well that it's the CDU is a bit lost at the moment. Do you agree that the CDU is a bit lost in this post-Merkel world? As as we covered at the time, they spent a significant period of time trying to select who their chancellor candidate was going to be between Armin Laschet and Marcus Söder, the Bavarian minister president and leader of the Christian Socialist Union, the CDU's sister party. But at the same time, I think that's a question they will be dealing with for many years to come, especially if this election does go the way of Olaf Scholz and the SPD. I think that is something the union will be dealing with for quite some time. But I mean, you're you're asking, is Lachette the best of the bunch? Well, the German public certainly don't seem to think so, because in a ZDF poll conducted earlier this week, they asked people to rate certain prominent German politicians on a scale of minus five to plus five. And of the 10 figures they polled, Lachette was the worst at minus 0.5 average. And then you had his former leadership rival, Friedrich Mertz, at net zero. And then you had Marcus Söder as the third popular person of those polled at plus 1.2, which is far behind Angela Merkel and also marginally behind Olaf Scholz. But what it says to me is that according to the German public, at least, in both of the decisions the CDU have made this year, they've sided with the wrong man. And just a little point on Lachette's unpopularity. To give him that little bit, because we've been, frankly, spending the last couple of minutes uh, telling him he's a terrible candidate. (laughs) I think what compounded the mistake is that, particularly when they were given, when German public could see the CDU-CSU agonising over the choice of Marcus Schroeder, and I mean, and there was a whole prevalent of opinion polls we talked about showing how much more popular Shoulder is. The fact that the CDU then went to choose a more unpopular candidate despite the people's wishes, I think just made people even more frustrated and annoyed uh, with the CDU itself. You know, we presented such a clear candidate to you and yet you failed to pick that candidate. I think that compounded and just made Lachette just suffer because of that. So already they were getting to this election with one hand tied behind the back with the German people frustrated that they had expressed quite a clear preference in the opinion polls of one candidate and yet the party still ignored it and picked the other. That to me is a sign and many people could have read it as a sign mm. of the party out of touch. I have another fascinating statistic on Mar- Armin Lachette's popularity. He, in a YouGov poll, his net approval rating is minus 32, which is by far and away the worst approval rating of all the prominent German politicians. In fact, his disapproval rating of 49% is higher than the AFD co-leaders. Now that takes some doing, given how divisive the AFD as a party and co- and its co-leaders are. So the fact that, that the people's preferred CDU-CSU candidate, Marcus Schroeder, was defeated in a backroom deal that where the people had no say, essentially, left an even more sour taste that probably meant that Lachette could never recover. And I don't think that can be discounted either. Mm. 
I mean, earlier in this year, we had state elections in Baden-Württemberg and also Rhineland-Palatinate back in March, where the CDU, they didn't poll disastrously, but they did a lot worse than they expected to do in both of those instances, or certainly worse than they thought they were going to do in the in the years and months building up to election day. So do you think we should have seen this struggle coming for the party on the national level as well? First of all, the CDU, CSU, particularly in recent years, not just this year, had struggled in state elections. Even during the time when Angela Merkel was relatively popular, the party has suffered some, new, some setbacks throughout its time in power. So it could be as something we talked about in other countries like Canada, Australia, that voters, whenever the CDU in power, likes a party the opposite strike to be in government. That could be one thing. But I think the elections in Rhineland Panatine in particular, that being the neighbouring state to North Rhine-Westphalia, should have sent a warning signal to the CDU that potentially this is not the man you should be choosing because these are people relatively nearby in, in a similar state to North Rhine-Westphalia, yes, much smaller in scale. But they could probably give the closest litmus test, certainly compared to Baden-Württemberg and Saxony-Anhalt as people who mm-hmm. then might know Armin Lachette closest, potentially. I still don't think that the scale, and we talked about this when we, preview, when we discussed the results of the two-state election, that the CDU would struggle to this same extent because it's a poor rating. It's something we talked about um, out before we started recording. It's been dire in recent days and weeks. I never thought I would see, I thought the CDU-CSU might drop below 30%, but to drop below 20% is something I still find it very hard to comprehend. And it's the lowest point in history. Now that is surprising to me. I don't think many people saw that coming, didn't they? Yeah, and I think talking about Lachette's approval rating might be a nice way to seg on to a man whose approval rating has certainly been sky high throughout this campaign. Indeed. And that is, of course, Olaf Schultz and the Social Democratic Party. Um, Olaf Schultz is currently the ju- finance minister under Angela Merkel and the deputy chancellor. He previously was the first mayor of Hamburg and did run for the leadership of the SPD in 2019. Then as a more moderate candidate alongside Kara Gertwiss, and he lost at that point to Norbert Walter Borjans and Shaskia Eskins. He was previously the deputy leader of the SPD from 2009 to 2019. The party itself has been, whilst been government for quite a significant period in German gov- uh, Germ- recent German history, it has only carved out, I would say, two distinct periods from 1969 to 1982 and from 1998 onwards where it's bidding government. And since 2013, it has been the junior coalition partner under Chancellor Angela Merkel, a role it reprised from 2005 to 2009. So Sam, given that Olaf Schultz has a record in government as finance minister and as previously from Labour Minister from 2007-2009. Does this give any clues to how he might govern Germany should he be given the opportunity? I think it does. I mean, in terms of his position within the finance ministry, showing how he might govern, I think his style has been quite clear in that he's been prioritising fiscal competence I think it's interesting that he's been finance minister under a centre-right government because they have very different 
priorities to what an SPD-led government might enforce upon the finance ministry. And I think that has forged Schultz's ability to work with different parties and also to govern in a more moderate lane, which I'm going to keep coming back to because I think that is key as to why he's been able to excel so much here and attract so many voters from across the spectrum. There was an interesting article I read which talked about Schultz forming this governing style that has been aptly named Schultzism within the finance ministry, which they identified as having three pillars. And I think it's really interesting because the more I read about it, the more I thought, yeah, I think this does have to a T what Olaf Schultz Schultz is about. One of them is um, third-way social democracy, which I think is modelled under the style of Gerhard Schroeder as well as other leaders we've talked about in different countries, which is marrying progressive social policy with a more functional economy. And then they identified that he's been key at what they called wedge politics, which is about trying to marry the different wings of the SPD, which he tried to do within the finance ministry. So things like um, the minimum wage hike and house building that they've pledged in this election, he pledged quite early on when he was making his stall for being SPD leader back in 2019 to try and balance what the party was achieving within the Grand Coalition with what the party would then pledge to achieve within the election. So whilst him as a finance minister has been prioritising politics that might have been driven by the CDU or the more moderate wing of the SPD, he's then been able to also champion politics that the left would be happy with as well. And then the final pillar, which I think is the biggest indication of his style of leadership, is activist executives, which they talked about being where within a position of power, you go yourself to try and achieve things. You don't just rely on the team doing that. So they talked about him being quite an experienced negotiator on the international level, where he was negotiating with the EU over its development funds, but also on the minimum corporation tax internationally as well. Schultz was a big feature in trying to negotiate that 15% floor on corporation tax. And also closer to home, the massive COVID relief bill that Germany passed was almost exclusively driven through by Olaf Scholz trying to get the parties on board. So that was a long answer to that question, but I think tells you a lot about what Olaf Scholz is all about and why he might have been able to capture the imagination this time around. That last point you made on international cooperation and negotiations is really interesting because it reminds me of Angela Merkel and the fact that she herself sometimes is seen as a one-woman government. Whatever she decides, you know, Germany acts or Europe acts, frankly, given the position of Germany in Europe. So do you think in a way that Olaf Scholz is being seen and part of the reason for this search is seen, is he seen as the heir to Merkel despite not coming from the same party? I think he's definitely trying to carve out that lane as much as people within the SPD will be trying to tell you he's not. Um, which, as you said, is super fascinating. A candidate from a different party being the heir apparent to Angela Merkel. But I think... Schultz being the vice chancellor is well positioned to do that because he's the closest thing to the current government that is in the race. 
So of course he's going to be the best representative of continuity. And then, I mean, even down to how he's acting on the campaign, there have been a couple of instances where he's been photographed in Angela Merkel's traditional pose where she clasps her two hands together at her chest, which I'm sure you churn and many of our listeners will recognize. Schultz has been doing that. So even down to mannerisms, it seems to be the, the heir apparent to Angela Merkel's leadership. I know that a few German publications have started calling Olaf Scholz farty, which is the the male equivalent of what Angela Merkel is colloquially known as mutti, the meaning father. Um, but I think more crucially, the reason that he has come across as the heir apparent is because he behaves in the same calm and moderate way as Angela Merkel did, even within the TV debates there was a lot of arguments going on between Armin Laschet and Annalena Baerbock about climate policy, about taxation, about infrastructure. And then you would have the debates referred to Schultz and he would be like, well, here is my position. I'm not going to get into this argument. And that is exactly the kind of politics that Angela Merkel came to represent for the 16 years that she was chancellor. So I think it is fascinating that he's come from a different party to take this lane. But I think many people would agree with me that this is the lane he has managed to acquire, which is bizarrely the continuity Merkel arena. Indeed, and whoever thought, if you consider you know the long history between the CDU and SPD, that it will work out like this. I think a lot of people, older Germans, would be very surprised that you know an SPD man is seeking to copy the style and governance of a CDU chancellor. So I think that is uh, really fascinating indeed. Uh, one thing about Olaf Scholz, we hinted, I hinted at in my introduction, is that he wasn't able to capture his own party's imagination when he ran for party leader in 2019. But clearly this time around, he struck a chord with the German public. How do you think Olaf Scholz was able to capture the public's imagination when he couldn't in 2019? Was it potentially because of the COVID-19 pandemic transforming his position? Or was there other things at play, do you reckon? I think the main reason he didn't manage to win that internal leadership election is because his ticket came to represent the moderate lane within the party. And the SPD have been having to do a lot of soul searching since 2017. And part of that has been trying to decide whether they want to be a more left-wing party and escape what they deem to be the shackles of this grand coalition. And the more left-wing ticket was able to win because the majority of the membership of the SPD seemed to prefer to take a more left-wing lane. But I think that divide that has been established between the leadership and Schultz in terms of their ideological preference is one of the other reasons that this campaign has been so successful because you've sort of been able to paint Schultz in two different lights where the party are quite happy with him because they have a separate party leadership which is left-wing, which they think will be able to get their way in any coalition negotiations. But then at the front of the campaign, the public-facing part of the campaign, you have someone who is more moderate, who might appeal more to disenfranchised CDU voters than anyone from the left of the party would have been able to do. So I think... The public imagination was captured by his leadership style, 
his experience and the policy platform he has been able to project. And then the party imagination has, has followed suit when they realise that he might be the best way back into the chancellery. But on the party leaders, I mean, if we, we I talked about the poll earlier where it talked about the top three concerns of German, fears that German mm-hmm. voters have, which is a lot of it revolves around tax hikes, mm-hmm. which is something if you are a left-wing, if you have left-wing leadership party, you can imagine the temptation to do so. So how does it, if he gets these goals, will there be that fundamental tension between Olaf Schultz, how he's run finance minister, and SPD, Olaf Schultz asking to negotiate the SPD. And does that tension, you think, potentially a warning sign for the SPD going ahead, moving forward? I think there definitely will be some tension, especially over the kind of priorities a Schultz-led SPD will want in a coalition negotiation. Because let's be clear, there are going to be extensive coalition discussions required after this election, whoever wins. Because currently, the best result any party is achieving is about 25%, which is nowhere near enough to um, form a government alone, or even with one other party, to be honest. But at the same time, I think the tension is more to do with the fact that the SPD problems will not be solved by Olaf Scholz winning this election, because even if they poll 25% and win the election, that is one of their worst ever electoral performances anyway, even if they win. So I think it shows that the health of the party is not in a good place, and there's still going to be internal tension over what the right solution to that is. Um, I don't think the tension will necessarily affect Schultz's ability to govern if indeed he does become chancellor, but I think it's certainly going to affect how the party markets itself, both in state elections and also how it might want to market itself within coalition negotiations as well. So therefore, we're saying that this election is more about the weaknesses of the CDU, more also necessary an endorsement of the SPD itself. Would that be a good characterization of this election? I think so. I, th- I mean, I think Olaf Scholz is popular. I think he is a person who... German people are quite happy to endorse as chancellor. But I think the SPD's problems are far deeper than that because I think they're not regaining the base that they've lost because 25% is still one of their worst performances. And they don't seem to be regaining any ground at all, really, from the Green Party, where they seem to have lost a lot of voters who want just an alternative. And they're still benefiting only really from the popularity of one man and a split on the kind of policy preferences they should have. So even if the SPD win this election, which it looks like they might, I think their problems go far deeper than that and are not going to be solved by Olaf Scholz sitting in the chancellery. But then again, you know, the CDU, you know, if you remember that 2013 campaign, we talked about Angela Merkel's infamous hand gesture of her clasping her hands together. They were adorning so many CDU poses in that election. We saw mm-hmm. how well that turned out. I think for so long, you know, whatever we tried to paint all our shorts, and I think it's very valid criticism, the CDU have tried to do it as well, and they have managed successfully for the last couple of elections, mm. haven't they? I mean, they? we've seen over the past few years that the, the combined vote share of the so-called Volksparteien, which means people's parties, the CDU and the SPD, 
has fallen dramatically. In, in 1994, one of the first elections after reunification, the combined vote share of these parties was 80%. And it's now looking like it's going to be under 50% for the first time ever. Um, so the, the extent of fragmentation generally and the health of both of the main two parties is in a dire state, really. Just quickly, on the, before we wrap up, before we turn to look at Annalena Baybalt, who's probably the last and probably least viable probable candidate to be chancellor, um, where would you look to in terms of states or demographics? We talked about, about where the Schultz candidacy or the SPD are looking to target or appeal to. We talked about the SPD's troubles, and we can't divorce from that from this election. But, you know, the Agenda 2010, I alluded to earlier, arguably broke the link between the SPD and the working class after the SPD government introduced a series of policies that dismantled the German welfare state and implemented tax cuts. So given that, are they drawing upon their past working class base? Are they gaining more among the urban liberals? So where is this extra support coming from? Because it has gained support. It must come from somewhere, isn't it? It seems to me that a lot of the support seems to have come from more older voters, not necessarily their traditional base, but the pool of voters that have existed in Germany for quite a long time who vote on leadership and leadership alone and want to find the perfect chancellor to lead Germany. So for the past 16 years, this group of voters have been attached to Angela Merkel. And I think a lot of the vote that has come to the SPD to increase them from 20% up to 25% is a 5% of voters who used to vote for Merkel, not because she was with the CDU, but because she was the better chancellor candidate. And that 5% this time has gone to Olaf Scholz because I think a lot of the slippage they'd experienced to other left-wing parties, most notably the Greens, are people who made up their minds quite some time ago that they were not going to vote for one of the main two parties. and still don't look to be doing that because even in a world where Schultz is the preferred chancellor by quite some distance, you still don't see those voters flocking back in any large number at all. So I think most of the voters have actually come from that kind of Merkel supporting pool who didn't support the CDU as a party. It does speak to the pragmatism of German voters at the end of it, isn't it? You yeah. just... Regardless of partyology, let's just pick the best candidate. And this time around, it's the SPD with uh, Olaf Schultz. Well, one of the past flavors of the month, it certainly seems, was Annalena Babel and the Greens, actually. And it's the final chancellor, probably viable chancellor candidate is. And I'm going to quickly talk about her in the remaining time we have left. The Greens, as a party, sprang out of the new social movement in the 70s. And its full name is actually Alliance 90 slash the Greens, where the Alliance 90 portion is a series of civil rights activists based in East Germany, and the Greens was a West German political party. At a federal level, the Greens have only been in government once from 1998 to 2005 as a junior coalition partner of the SPD under Gerhard Schroeder. Uh, currently, it is in coalition in 10 out of the 16 German states. And crucially, as we hinted at earlier, uh, nominated a minister-president in Baden-Württemberg, the first time it has led a coalition government, which we actually covered in an earlier podcast. The male and female co-leaders are Anneli Baybot and Robert Harper, who were both elected co-leaders in 2018. But nonetheless, it was Baybot who was initially nominated 
by the Federal Board of the Greens to become a Chancellor candidate earlier in 2021. And she previously has served as an MP from Brandenburg, which is a province surrounding Berlin, and is unlike Schultz or um, Lachette, not held any uh, state or federal office, answerly compared to Robert Harbick, who was a uh, who was a minister in a state government. So, Sam, given that background, why did the Greens come to decision of nominating Anne Beaver over Robert Harbick? I think initially it all came from the fact that she was what they perceived to be the better place candidate to excite the new voters who were flocking to the Greens in droves at that time because she would be the only female candidate in the race. She would be one of the youngest ever Chancellor candidates of any party and they saw her as a quite young, fresh, effective orator as well, which, as we know, Germans are big fans of picking someone who they think can be a strong leader. And I think they thought that Annalena Baerbock was going to capture their imagination in that way, which I think the youth and energy to stand out against Schultz and Laschet was actually the right play for the Green Party in the end. I don't think it was a problem, but I think she has just failed to deliver on the weight of expectation that not only the Green Party placed upon her, but Germany as a whole placed upon her as well when I think the media lit up when she was selected and now I think she's just fighting to make sure the Green Party can deliver a strong result regardless. So where did it all go wrong for her despite that initial buzz? Because I remember talking to you as as a poll surge and it looked like, you know, she was the candidate. But, you know, we had a warning of this with Martin Schultz in 2017. If you recall, that initial burst of euphoria, which soon faded. What happened to Annalie Baybot this time around? Or is it just a German flirtation before with flavours of the month? I mean, I don't know where to begin, really, because there has been a series of problems with Annalena Baerbock as a candidate. Not least, she has been repeatedly accused of falsifying things or exaggerating things on her own CV, which the Green Party have had to come out and defend. Um, She said that she was a member of the UN High Commission for Refugees and she's never been listed as one at all, even though she was involved in a subordinate charity. She's been accused of plagiarism within the book she released. You had the philosopher Stefan Weber claiming that sections of her book were copied from Wikipedia. And then you also had a recent scandal where it was claimed that she failed to disclose a huge bonus she was paid by the Green Party Um, and because the Green Party have been trying to market themselves as the less grubby, less politicking party, that just didn't reflect well. There have been many people stating that the kind of scrutiny of Annalena Baerbock as a candidate has been immense compared to the other two, which at, at times I tend to agree with, but at the same time I think it's just shown that there have been many mistakes made by the fact that she's inexperienced as a campaigner on a significant level and the party itself is inexperienced with campaigning at this level because they've never been before scrutinised for a potential chancellor candidate. So I think there have just been a series of problems that Baerbock has failed to deal with effectively time and time again. 
And just very quickly as well, the plagiarism scandal is something which has plagued, you know, CDU cabinet ministers, for example, yeah. had to resign over that. So this is not something new. And I think to give you a party that tries to market itself new and then turning out to have the same problems as the old party, I, I think hurts you very much there. Um, we, mm-hmm. we, is there any other reason besides the emergence of climate politics as the issue? And we talked about the floods as well that could have still seen the Greens increase its support because regardless of Alan and Baybot's performance, they are very likely to record a better result this time around in 2017, aren't they? They're destined to record their big best result in the history of the party. I mean, they are going to be the third largest party, bar any significant surprises, and they're going to have more seats than they've ever had before. I'm I'm willing to state that as a as a big prediction. I think it's they're bound to do that. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that because people have become so disenfranchised with the CDU and SPD in recent years, mainly motivated, I think, by the Grand Coalition, where they think that if they vote for either of those parties, they're not going to get anything different because they're both going to jump into bed with each other anyway. And the Greens have been well positioned to benefit from that disenfranchisement because they're quite a centrist party, even though they're very socially liberal and a liberal on environmentalism. Fiscally, they're quite fiscally prudent compared to other European Green parties. And in fact, they nearly went into coalition with the CDU back in 2017. So I think the party was really well positioned to pick up those voters who wanted an alternative. And after after nearly nine years of grand coalition, I think the, the German voters were wanting something different and the Green Party were the best beneficiaries of that. But nonetheless, though, will the Greens view 2021 as a missed opportunity? Yes, you, you know, COVID-19 has upended some of it and there could have been a greater focus on leadership and stuff like that. But nonetheless, would they see it as a missed opportunity? Potentially, potentially. I, we had been talking earlier this year about how we thought that there could potentially be a Green Chancellor of Germany. And I think that is just not going to happen anymore, for sure. And so in that way, I think they will view it as a missed opportunity because they were so well positioned going into this campaign. But still, I think they could come to view this as quite an effective building block because they are going to be a really important feature of the coalition negotiations to come, whatever happens, because I think whether the CDU or SPD end up winning this race, they're going to talk to the Greens first in some capacity. And if they can go into government with quite a substantial leverage in the government, because I think they're going to have a lot of seats in the Bundestag, then that could build a nice platform for elections going forward, painting them as a real legitimate force in German politics ahead. And it could be the foundation they need to build on for subsequent state elections as well. So... I think it might be a missed opportunity that they felt so close to the chancellery and they're not going to make it. But I think in terms of the party brand and the party machinery, they've grasped this opportunity with both hands because I think whatever happens, they're going to perform between somewhere in the region of 15 to 20%, which for a third party in Germany and for a Green Party internationally is extremely good. Maybe not takes one election, it might just take two or three. And, and don't forget, you know, if you get SPD chancellor, one thing that has been probably 
ignored in the coverage so far, and we talked about in this podcast, is how weak the SPD as a party is. And who is probably best placed to exploit mm-hmm. the weakness as a federal centre-left party is probably the Greens. So if they play their cards right, yes, mm-hmm. they might be a junior coalition partner. We talked about the problems junior coalition partners place, but they play their cards right, they could certainly benefit in some shape or form. Um, this has been a fascinating podcast of the, probably the three candidates who could be the next German chancellor. And we will be releasing a supplementary podcast closer to the German election date itself, talking about some of the other riders, such as the Free Democrats, the AFD, and the Linke. And we will be talking about these parties in detail then. But for now, Sam, and to finish everything off, you know, as, as the question we've been ending consistently for the last three weeks, this is going to be a hard one. It's probably going to be the scenario none of us would thought would happen. But what do you think in terms of results, and we're going to be talking about coalitions after the election, would happen? I think the SPD are going to narrowly win this election. But I think the SPD and CDU voting percentages in the end will be very close to each other. But I think Olaf Scholz will just carry his party over the line to win it. But when I say that, I don't think there are any winners in an election where I think every party is going to poll under 25%. Interestingly, because I actually think that there will be that silent pragmatic voter looking at the situation who will be assessing the leadership candidates and it might give Olaf Schultz an even bigger margin over the CDU than one might think. However, I agree with you that the CDU and SPD it's by itself will not have the numbers to gain a coalition government. There will have to be a third party involved. Mm-hmm. I just cannot see a numbers where it's only two of them. So I actually do think that Olaf Schultz will do slightly better, particularly the state of Germany as it is right now. And the flat Angela Merkel's government is going on and a high. It's not an unpopular government by any strength. She's doing well. I think it will reflect in a certain way on Olaf Schultz itself. So I do think that the SPD might do a little bit better than we think. And on that note, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we will be diving into the results of Norway's election and previewing the Icelandic election taking place on that very same weekend as the German one. And we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han and until next time, we will speak to you soon. Bye.